Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Spiritual Practice and Mindfulness, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm Elizabeth Cronin, a host of the channel, and today I am talking with Dr. Linville Meadows about his book, A Spiritual Pathway to Recovery from Addiction, A Physician's Journey of Discovery. In today's episode, I am talking with Dr. Linville Meadows, about his book, A Spiritual Pathway to Recovery from Addiction, A Physician's Journey of Discovery. Addiction occurs among physicians at the same rate as in the general population, about 10%. Unlike the general population, however, an intensive rehabilitation program geared specifically for their profession vastly improves their chances of finding long-term sobriety. Over 70% of these physicians will be clean and sober and practicing medicine five years later. How is this achieved, and can these principles be applied to anyone? A Spiritual Pathway to Recovery from Addiction is the memoir of a group of physicians going through an intensive rehab program for addiction to drugs and alcohol. It is presented as a collection of their stories and the lessons they encountered during their time together. As they proceed on a course of personal self-discovery, they share their past experiences, fears, and hopes. As the lessons of recovery begin to sink in, their thinking and behavior change from that of a self-absorbed, ego-driven wreck to someone capable of changing their life for the better, without drugs or alcohol. In his memoir, Dr. Meadows shares his insight into the spiritual pathway to recovery from addiction. Dr. Meadows is an honors graduate of the University of North Carolina School of Medicine and studied at Duke University. He later held faculty positions at both institutions. He was recognized internationally for his work in cancer research, receiving both grants and awards. He authored numerous scientific studies. He was designated as a clinical investigator of the National Cancer Institute. His recovery from addiction to drugs and alcohol began on May 7, 1997. Since that time, he has counseled a large number of addicts and alcoholics striving to get clean and sober. His observations and study over the last 20-plus years formed the basis for his book. He and his wife, Anne, live on a hobby farm in the Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia. In the backyard, you will find two sheep, three alpacas, one donkey, and numerous birds, including turkeys, ducks, geese, and a bunch of chickens. An organic garden sits nearby. He is an avid photographer and plays bluegrass guitar. For more information about Dr. Meadows and his book, please visit www.spiritualpathwaytorecovery.com.
So thanks for being here today. I'm wondering if you could start us out by telling us a little bit about yourself and how you came to write this book. Well, I'm a retired physician, an oncologist, that is to say a cancer doctor, and I'm proud to say that I'm a recovering alcoholic and addict. Uh, I know a lot about addiction because I've been there. I know a lot about physicians because I've been there too. So what I was I went go ahead. Continue. Um, I was um, uh, I went to medical school at UNC and did postgraduate work at Duke. And later I was on the faculty of both institutions. Um, uh, my own journey into and, and out of addiction is, is uh, part of the reason that I wrote this book. Uh, the idea <clears throat> is to share as much as I can about what I've learned over the years uh, with people who are struggling with addiction and their family and friends. Yes. And you in the book, you share your story, but you also weave in stories of other physicians that you met when you went for treatment. Do you, could you say a little bit about what's unique about how physicians um, sometimes get treatment? Yes. Um, turns out that, that doctors get addicted just like everybody else, but their long term sobriety is a lot greater than the general population. Over 70% of these physicians will be clean and sober and practicing medicine five years later. This compares to only 10% uh, at one year from standard 28-day programs. And Alcoholics Anonymous um, uh, produces only 20% at one year. So this is a really huge difference. Um, and, and what I wanted to share was, was what the difference is Turns out that the principles are, that, that are used in all of these programs are the same, but there's an intensity and um, uh, a, a desire that seems to be greater among the doctors. And these, since addiction is the same everywhere, it uh, doesn't matter what kind of car you drive or how much money your daddy has or where you went to school, none of that stuff matters. Um, uh, the, addiction, the addiction is, is very uh, democratic that way. So that the principles that are talked about here are applicable to anybody, to anybody that, that wants to change. Do you think there was there's something special about bringing physicians together for treatment? Bringing anybody together for treatment is, is important. Um, we we addicts and alcoholics, males and females um, and others. Um, uh, are like people in a in a lifeboat from a from a, 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 a an ocean liner that's gone down, and it doesn't matter who you were before the ship went down. You're all in the same boat, and everybody is literally trying to help everybody else. For physicians, it's a little different. Um, for me, at least, I was scared to death. Um, my uh, 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 using just got worse and worse. I was scared to death that somebody would find out. There was nobody I could talk to. Um, I was deathly afraid that, 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 that I was going to lose everything. And then one day, um, uh, my nurses realized what was going on, and they said, Doc, go home. And they called the medical board they, uh, to come and, and like check me out. And I was sure that the next morning the medical police were going to show up and take me away in handcuffs, and my medical license and my medical practice would be gone forever. Interestingly, that's not what happened. When I got to work the next day, there was a strange looking fellow, didn't have a coat and tie on or anything. And he came over and gave me a big hug. 
And I, I thought, this guy is nuts. And he had this really great big grin on his face. And I thought, what is going on here? And he said, very simply, do you have a problem? And in a moment of clarity, I said, yes. And then he said, do you want to get some kind of, do you want to get treatment for it? And I said, yes. Although I had absolutely no idea what he was talking about. In those days, at least addiction was not covered in medical school. And you really, you, you treated the effects of alcoholism, but you never actually looked at the, at the un underlying nature of the disease or the personalities of the, of the people that had it. For doctors, um, uh, well, I was sent to detox. And uh, the, the idea of detox is to let the uh, toxins and the poisons drain out of your system for two or three or four days. For some, it's off into a halfway house or something like that. But for us guys, impaired positions, they call this, uh, that simply wouldn't do. We were required to attend one of uh, maybe a dozen treatment centers across the U.S. that were designed exclusively for physicians. Now, nurses, attorneys, anybody else as well, but specifically for, for doctors. All right. Um, the first thing that's really kind of funny is that we had to accept the fact that we weren't the doctor anymore. Now we were the patient. And that took, uh, that actually takes about a month to get over that mindset before you can begin to look at yourself and figure out how you got there and how you're going to get out. Um, the, uh, the physicians who showed up were from every subspecialty, every part of the country and, and every different um, drug of choice. Um, uh, but like I said, we were all in this lifeboat together. We were all afraid that we we're going to lose our license. If you didn't finish this program, they didn't, they didn't give it back to you. You know, it was on temporary hold while you were um, taking the treatment. But if you didn't finish it, you, you lost it forever. Um, so we were all sort of uh, uh, frightened by that. We were frightened by our disease. We were frightened because we had no idea what to, uh, how to treat it. And uh, there was a really almost sweet camaraderie between us there because it didn't, nothing really mattered except the fact that we were all terribly sick and if we, and we had to get it and we helped each other all the time. Um, uh, uh, we were telling each other our stories and what happened and what we were afraid of and what we had learned that day. Um, so the, the book then becomes a series of lessons and stories that happened from the first day uh, of my recovery when I walked into rehab until uh, the day that I walked out seven months later. And basically, I started with, with um, asking the question, what, what is this disease? How did I get it? Um, and then I, then I went on from there to uh, how do you treat it? How do you have to change? They say you need a complete sea change in your personality and character if you're, if you're going to get over it. Um, uh, it's a long journey, uh, and we learned all kinds of things. We had many, we were basically, uh, swimming in a sea of rehab from about eight o'clock in the morning till late into the night. Um, uh, we often went to bed talking about different things and different ideas and, and the, the things that we were wrestling with at the moment. So you lived with these fellow, um, physicians in rehab and had meals with them and mm -hmm. attended with them? Yeah, the, um, the, the center had uh, made arrangements with an apartment complex that was directly behind the center, and we shared uh, apartments there, two to, two to a bedroom and four to an apartment, and we basically ate together, and um, it was required that you attend at least one 
AA, Alcoholics Anonymous meeting a day, and that was always at eight. So it was 9.30 by the time you got home. So you were immersed in this together. Going to the meetings, you know, in Atlanta, you can't go anywhere, but it takes a half an hour and often an hour. So we would talk about stuff and then we would have a meeting for an hour and then we'd talk about stuff on the way home. So um, it was very, very in-depth. It was very intense. Our, we would have group sessions together where we would discuss ideas. We would have lessons, uh, lectures, I guess you'd call them, by the psychologists and doctors that were actually working at the center. Um, so that every day you were learning something, either about your disease, its treatment, but most importantly, about yourself. And when you say you, the starting place was understanding, learning about the disease, what, what did you learn about the disease? Well, um, there's, uh, that's, a, that's, a, that's a long story. Um, um, the, the first thing that we learned was, in fact, that addiction is a disease. It's not a lack of willpower. It's not, tem- not succumbing to temptation of, devil, of uh, demon rum. It's just a disease. It's not due to lack of willpower. Uh, it's inherited. Um, that is to say, it runs in families, uh, but it skips generations. And it takes many forms. One of the ladies that I met said, I don't understand this genetic stuff. She says, uh, uh, me and my brothers and sisters are all crackheads and my, and my <laughs> mom and daddy are both alcoholics. Well, uh, it doesn't matter exactly how it's expressed. My parents, for example, um, smoked, but they really never did anything other than that. Our upbringing was very much like um, uh, someplace between the Waltons and Ozzie and Harriet. Um, I had cousins on both sides, I discovered, who were both bipolar and addicted to all kinds of stuff, everything from heroin to pot to right down the list. Um, but my grandfather was a, um, a very hyper-religious evangelical preacher. And hyper-religiosity is actually one of the forms of addiction. So, and uh, they, they said he used to run moonshine. So I'm, I'm pretty convinced that he swapped um, his, his alcohol uh, addiction for uh, religion as his uh, uh, as his drug of choice. It doesn't really matter how it expresses itself, whether it's gambling, you can actually be addicted to exercise. Um, um, uh, uh, the the deputy sheriff that that picks up a, a, a drunk on the on the uh, street and calls him to uh, the drunk tank. Um, is it's the same as, as when that deputy goes and takes the county judge who's too drunk to drive home and takes him and drives him home. It's the same process. The, there's no difference really between an alcoholic or an addict. A junkie is the same as, as a drunk. It's all the same disease. You can, you can compare it to diabetes. Um, I'm diabetic and I, I kind of know that firsthand too. In diabetes, it runs in the family, but it may not affect everybody. A person could have a tendency to diabetes, but it would never, ever be expressed. But if, like me, you, you actually will become diabetic, something happens one day. Um, or there's this invisible line that you cross over. And when that happens, you can never go back to being um, a, a person who can eat sugar. You know, before I could eat all the donuts I wanted, it didn't matter. Today, if I eat one donut, my sugar goes up the roof. It, it, I can treat the disease of, it, of, of diabetes but it can never be cured. I can control it um, and, I, and I can get rid of the possible or avoid the possible um, complications of diabetes. 
but I can never go back to a point where, where I can, uh, I can uh, eat sweets again. Uh, and no matter how well I control my diabetes, um, uh, over the years, if 10, 20 years later, I go back to eating sugar, it's the same thing that's going to happen. My blood sugar is going to skyrocket. Well, the exact same thing occurs in, in addiction. Um, it doesn't matter how much sugar you eat before you cross the line into diabetes. And it really doesn't matter how much you drink or use before you cross the line into addiction. There is an invisible line that, that, that's crossed over. Something both in the diabetic and in the addict, something about our bodies changes in a way that's really not terribly well-defined. Um, once that happens for, for an addict, uh, a couple of things happen. There is this incredible um, uh, uh, craving that comes up uh, where you can be walking down the street and all of a sudden the thought of having a, having a bottle of wine just overcomes you. And you can't resist it. It's very strange. Um, and no person who's really never had the disease of addiction can understand it. I can't tell you how many times I've heard somebody say, well, why didn't you just quit like I did? Well, it's like I can't quit being a diabetic. I can't quit being an addict. Um, the same invisible line exists. The old timers say that, that a grape, uh, that a raisin can never go back to being a grape. And that a pickle can never go back to being a cucumber. Uh, it doesn't work that way. I can treat the disease, um, but it, it takes a long time. The, one of the problems with a disease is it affects your mind and your body and your spirit, whatever that is. Um, and in order for treatment to work, it really has to address all three of those areas. Right. Um, the first, the first step is that I have to actually believe that I'm an addict or an alcoholic, however you want to think about it, um, until I can actually accept the fact that that's what's going on. There's, there's no way I'm going to get better. I have to decide there's a problem before I can find a solution. Um, it's not up to me to tell you that you're an alcoholic. The judge can't tell you. Your wife can't tell you. The policeman arresting you for, for a DUI can't tell you. You have to decide for yourself if, in fact, um, you are. One of the ways you can have a clue is that you get what are called negative consequences. If you've gotten to almost anybody gets a DUI is in trouble. Um, uh, if you've ever gotten arrested while you were drunk or high, you need an eye opener to start the day. Um, does the thought of using um, ever fill your mind? Do you reach a point where you can't get can't wait to get high again? Um, and my, they talk about a higher power in Alcoholics Anonymous and in recovery. And we might get to that later, but my drug of choice became my higher power. Um, it, I, it, I did whatever it wanted me to do. Um, I, I worshipped it above all others. Uh, it was very jealous. It would have no other God before it. And um, uh, that, was, that was where um, I got my, my strength from, if I had any. Um, they say that, that a friend of mine told me once, he says, you know, I didn't get in trouble every time I got drunk, but every time, um, but every time I got in trouble, I was drunk. The thing about therapy, because it affects all three parts of the human, is that there's no drug that works. You can give somebody the um, narcotic uh, analogs, uh, the, the blockers, but that really doesn't change the underlying problem. When a person just quits drinking, uh, I call them abstinent. That is, they're, they're not, no liquor is passing their lips. 
But the underlying problems of the mind, the body, and the spirit have not changed. And they are very uh, unhappy uh, as people. They're, they're restless, irritable, and discontent all the time. My son was very much like that. Almost anything would set him off and he would just lose his temper. Um, and the, the abstinence actually has to, has to be absolute. Um, that's because of the craving and the allergy. Um, if, if a person can go like to AA meetings and can swear off drink and they can sort of tiptoe around the edges of, of, the, of the program and they can um, uh, sort of begin it, but they never really actually pursue the, the whole length of it. Um, I call that sobriety. I, I call recovery when a person literally launches on a spiritual pathway to change themselves completely and to change how they uh, relate to the universe and how uh, they behave in this world based on that relationship. Um, a spiritual approach works, but only when that person is ready. Uh, for me, uh, I had to hit a, what they call a bottom where you really... Uh, I guess the definition of a bottom would be I reached a point where it was either quit or die and there were no other options. And I was there some days I wanted to quit so badly. And some days uh, it just didn't, I just didn't care. That was fortunately when, um, when my nurses intervened on me. Now the toxic effects of the alcohol and the drugs will fade over time, but this, this terrible craving will always come back. The bottoms, the, sorry, the bottle is but a symptom. And the underlying problem was the way I was living my life. I have to do a whole completely 180 degree change, a sea change, and be willing to give up everything about my whole way of life. They told us that everything, we, everything you think you know is wrong. And you really don't want to tell a doctor that because he's going to argue with you till, till, the, till the cows come home. But, but, in all, but in all honesty, I didn't want my old life back. You could have it. Oh, there was no, there were no good times that I'd be missing. There was just a lot of misery, blackness, and um, uh, uh, living inside a hellhole that was actually my own creating. Um, the other thing that's really important to realize is that I can't do this by myself. Okay, um, the part, the the biggest part of the of the trouble is with me, and and not with things outside of me. Um, a good friend told me, he says, my, he, says, he says, my name is Jim and my problem is Jim. Because it doesn't matter what somebody did to you or what you think somebody did to you. Um, what's most important is how I um, learn to relate to the world that I'm in. Um, uh, any questions before I launch on again? Yeah, no, I'm interested in the, your insight into what has to change within you. and. In, in the book, you talk about really having to let go of all the things you believe. And, and now you're referencing, I think you just said, like, the way you relate to the world or something to that effect. And well, <clears throat> I don't know what spirituality is. Um, the best definition I've come up with over these many years is it's how I relate to the universe and how I behave in this world based on that relationship. If, for example, I think the universe is, is neutral and it doesn't matter what I do, then, then rape, pillage, you know, uh, Enron, whatever you want to do is perfectly OK. If the uh, universe is malignant, then I've got to got to um, watch out for myself every minute of the day. But if the universe is actually benign, then 
um, the power, the force of the universe, God, higher power, Godhead, the Buddha within, whatever you want to call it. I think that's all the same thing. And that, that sort of flows through me with the power. Um, and, and, and I like to use the word love. And by that, I mean unconditional love. Um, I want the very, very best for you and yours, and I want nothing in return. Um, and I, I think that's the underlying force of the universe. If you were to take this, this love uh, and shine it through a spiritual prism, what you would get would be kindness, compassion, honesty, faith. Those are all the components of what this is. The other thing about this spiritual thing is that it's infinitely creative. I can remember telling a friend of mine that when I went to heaven, I want to be able to love and I want to be able to work. And my wife, Anne, pointed out to me that you really mean creative work. If, in fact, I'm, I'm somehow patterned after the universe, then it's not that the universe has hands or toenails, but that I am as creative as the universe. The Buddhists like to say that the, the world is absolutely impermanent and everything's going to change and should never be attached to it. But I like to turn that around and say the universe is constantly recreating itself every moment, every second. My body's enzymes are, are tossing uh, glucose into glycogen and other things going on constantly. My body is, is not the same as it was a second ago or a year ago or whatever. Every time a leaf moves on one of the trees in my front yard, the universe has actually totally redrawn everything about it. And, and for me, what that says is that there's absolute creativity. There is absolute new chances and new opportunities that occur every second. But I sort of have to find the eyes to see that. Um, uh, it's hard to, to realize that, that everything you, you think you know is wrong. But what happened was that uh, the morals that we had, um, the high altruistic values, they all got washed away. The more we used, the more our, our thinking became twisted. Alcohol, pot, heroin, every get high you can name is a brain poison. It kills neurons. So by the time um, any person, not just a doctor, any person reaches um, the, the portals of recovery, um, their, their minds and their bodies are really sick with, with the poisons that they've been ingesting. Uh, what that means is, is that really almost everybody comes into to, to recovery um, has a severe, almost clinical depression. The poisons of the, of the uh, poisoning of the neurons takes a long time to clear out. Um, and so it takes a while to really come to the idea that there's something wrong that needs to be fixed. Um, there's a, one of my counselors told me about what he called the turd cycle. And this is a psychology thing. He was a psychologist. And he said that when he was a little boy, his daddy called him little turd. Well, loving his daddy, he was sure that his daddy was right. So he went around acting like a little turd. All the people around him would go, oh, look at little Johnny. He acts just like a little turd. He's probably a little turd. So they began treating him like a little turd. And so over the course of time, this, this thought process uh, became part of who he was. Now, if you're trying to do behavioral therapy, uh, and maybe you can elaborate on this. I'm certainly not a psychologist. But you normally would begin at the point of changing a person's self-image. All right. And if I believe that I'm a good person, then I'll act as a good person and um, around the cycle. Uh, for it is a cycle. But in the alcoholic and the addict, that won't work because their brains are damaged. So they will resist every new thought. Their thinking is, is in fact, it's called stinking thinking in the program because it is really messed up. I mean, 
Um, for someone to think that it's perfectly normal to drive down the road with a needle in their arm, shooting up cocaine and listening to Tom Petty, that's not normal thinking. All right. That's really it's really gotten into a bad place. And so the way that you have to do this is you change the behavior so that you're in, it's enforced uh, abstinence where you uh, all the time during the day or during most of the night, you walk this pathway of abstinence with other people who are walking with you, which makes it much easier. But it is absolute enforced abstinence. And after this behavior pattern um, gets ingrained in who you are, then the thought processes will return to normal. But it doesn't happen in 28 days. The average time that the physician stayed there was three to four, occasionally five months. Um, I was so thick, so thick. <laughs> I was so sick. They kept me there for seven months. Um, so um, it takes a while. It's not just going to happen overnight. It is, it's, not, it's not like graduating from high school. It's like a process that you're on. It's not an event. It's a way of how you're going to live your life from there on. The first thing that has to happen is, is honesty. I have to get honest with myself. I have to admit I have a problem. I have to admit I can't deal with it myself. I have to admit that it's killing me. I have to admit that my life is completely scrambled up and unmanageable. Um, it's honesty becomes uh, the, the keystone on which everything else is built. Because if, if I don't, if I can't find this honesty, then when I look at myself and my problems, I won't look clearly. And all the rest of the things that I'm trying to build uh, will be like a house built, built on, a, on, a, on, a, on, a, on sand. All right. So I have to look clearly at the mistakes that I've made. Uh, and if from, from these mistakes, I can, I can then figure out what are the character defects that I have that were responsible for these. I have to look at what were the errors in my old ideas. And I have, to, I have to be honest enough to realize that I'm the source of my own problem. Um, nobody else can make me happy. Nobody else can make me sad. I am responsible for the consequences of all of my actions. I have to be willing to start over again. And here's one of the key parts. I have to be willing to do whatever it takes. I have to put as much energy into getting sober as I did to getting high. I can remember one time when I was out of my particular drug, which at that moment was cocaine, that I drove to three different banks in three different counties to get enough money to buy it. And then I drove to a whole nother county to, uh, to meet up with the guy who was going to sell it to me. And we had to drive to another county to where he was getting it from. It was like four. I started my journey at 5 p.m. and it was 4 a.m. before I got home. That's commitment. And I have to be willing to uh, put that degree of commitment. Um, the other, the other thing is that, is that everybody assumes that they've got some kind of secret that they'll never be able to share. I did this or I did that. And there's just no way I'll ever be able to tell anybody. And as, as father Mick said, he was our spiritual advisor there. He says, if, if, um, if you, if you go to your grave with those secrets, you will go to your grave, you will go to your grave drunk. Um, and I must give up my secrets. I have to look completely honestly at myself. All of my old ways of thinking, my old habits must go. I have to start from absolute um, ground zero. Turns out that the, um, the root cause of a lot of our problems is um, low self-esteem. For some reason, we, we, we never think that we're good enough. We're always on the outside looking in. Now, everybody has that to a degree. But in the alcoholic addict, that seems to be a very strong motivating force. Um, basically, it's, it's fear. 
right? And the, the end result is, is that my ego becomes uh, basically uh, unbound and it runs crazy. Now, for most of us, I think, and again, you, you can probably enlighten me, the heart and the mind have to be in some kind of balance. Um, and if one or the other is out of balance, uh, uh, things don't go well. As addicts and alcoholics, one of the things we discovered early on was that we really couldn't stand the pain of the world. Our hearts, um, whatever they might have ended up years later, were too sensitive. We simply couldn't stand the pain of the world. Um, the hypocrisy, the dishonesty that we saw, it just tore us up inside. But that pain became so intense that we couldn't stand it anymore. So we took a little drug here or there. Um, to kind of um, get rid of that for a while. Because the nice thing about drugs and alcohol is they really take you away from whatever reality is giving you fits. Can I ask you how you deal with the pain of the world now? Well, the, um, the thing about that, that's what I was talking about. The thing about the pain of the world is that um, it, uh, it becomes overwhelming. I can remember when uh, I was 15, my younger brother died of leukemia. Almost exactly a year later, my father had a heart attack and died. Now, when my brother died, uh, I, I, my heart felt like it was being ripped apart. You see those strong man ads where they rip a phone book apart? That's what it felt like. But when my father died a year later, I didn't feel anything. Some emotional clamp had come down over my heart and said, that's enough pain, Linville. That's all you're going to feel. We're going to protect you from here on out. And basically, it shut down um, uh, the, the, that sensitivity. And the ego then, then became, um, basically ran wild. Um, the ego, as far as I can tell, is driven by fear. And um, the fears that the alcoholic lives with become vastly magnified over time. Um, and to open the heart back up, it's, it's really an axiom that when, when someone goes into recovery and they shut down their ego, I mean, ego deflation is right at the top of the list of things you have to do. When you shut down your ego, all of a sudden, these emotions that you haven't felt in years come uh, spilling out of you. And it makes you a little crazy. Um, I can remember um, uh, when I was uh, the first couple of weeks. They take away your chemical coping skills, your drugs and whatever. Right. And before it takes a while for those non-chemical coping skills to, to, to really kick in. And when that um, when those um, emotions come spilling out, the, the one that, that hit me at, at least and others, too, is anger. I became so angry. I was sure that my business partner had stabbed me in the back. She was responsible for all of my problems and uh, my my hatred and my resentment just came to boiling to the surface, and it was all I could think about. My uh, roommates took my car keys away because they were afraid I was going to do something, something uh, to hurt myself. And they didn't realize it, but my last thought before they did that was I should drive my car under the railroad tracks and wait for the 310 to show up. So that was actually a pretty good thing. Um, and here's one of the secrets of, of recovery. Um, and it was, was very surprising to me as a scientist. I was in this terrible resentment. And this man showed up in our apartment. And I never saw him before, never saw him since. I'm not sure what to make out of that. And he said, you have a resentment. And I said, no, I don't. He says, just listen to me. He says, I'm going to tell you a prayer that will take away this resentment. And I said, look, dude, I'm not sure I even believe in God. And I certainly don't know how to pray. And he says, it doesn't matter. Just shut up and do it. I tell you, once a day, I want you to just say this. I thank you for taking away my resentment against my partner. 
and replace it with the faith that no matter what happens, everything will be all right. He said, do it once a day for 14 days, and by the time you get done, uh, it'll be better. Well, being a good alcoholic, if once a day is good, twice a day has got to be better. So I did it twice a day. And at the end of a week, I suddenly realized that the resentment was no longer occupying all of my mind. It was a little teeny uh, uh, niblet someplace down in the bottom of, of, of what was going on with me, but it was no longer running my life. Now, I was a scientist. I did cancer research. I did research in the clinic with new drugs. I did research in the uh, laboratory. I had my own laboratory where we did research with cancer drugs and with just trying to understand the biology of cancer. Um, and so when you find something that works, you do an experiment and it works. You can't hardly wait to do it again. Well, it wasn't very long before another resentment came up and I did it again and it worked. All right. And I don't know why. I don't know what prayer is. I don't know what he taught me. I mean, you can postulate on that all day. But saying this over and over worked. Now, maybe I, I you know, I'm not, I'm not sure what happened. But I've done, I've used that prayer and I've given it to countless other people for the last 20, almost 23 years. And it has never failed. I don't know of anything else that goes with that kind of reliability that never fails. You know, my car breaks down, a light bulb goes out, you know. Um, but but it, it really, really hasn't changed. Um, and, and that's one of the, that's part of the, of acquiring a spirituality that's useful. A pie in the sky, angels and, and cherubs and, and pink, pink harps and stuff like that. That's not useful. If I'm going to change the way that I live, I have to find something that's useful and practical every day. And that's what we were working on. Um, uh, you, can, you can talk about um, uh, prayer. Uh, you, can, you can sing praises. You can sing songs about it. You can write sermons about it. Uh, you can tell others how wonderful it is. You can draw pictures of it. Um, but until you actually incorporate it into yourself, you actually chew it and swallow it and ingest it, and it goes from your head down to your heart. Um, until that actually happens, none of this becomes practical. One of the other things that, that I had to learn was um, how to uh, uh, recognize that I'd made a mistake. I have to admit that I made a mistake. When I see a resentment, I can. When I, when I was about a year sober, I was driving um, and down a highway in Jacksonville, Florida, where I was living at the time. And this old song by Sting came up on the radio. I came to stop at a, at a red light, and the song came up on the radio. And it was a song that my ex-wife and I had used to party to. And when those first um, uh, chords came up, I, an instant old resentment came boiling up. And just in the, a split second, I was really, really angry. All right. And, you know, she wasn't even there. Right? I, hadn't seen, I hadn't seen her talk to her in years, yet the, the remembrance, the resentment that had been buried down in there um, came bubbling up without me even asking for it. And in order, to make, in order to make it go away, I said the same prayer. And about that time, the um, um, light changed, the song quit on the radio, and I drove on down the road and completely uh, uh, forgetful of what had happened just, just a few minutes ago. Question. So it sounds like maybe what you're describing is earlier you said sort of a way you relate to the world and to others in the world, but like moving away from thinking my business partner stabbed me in the back or my that I that need to sort of blame. Yes. 
and thinking that I'm not, you know, that this is not okay, or even thinking that there's so much pain in the world and that's not okay. It sounds like you shifted to a place where you're like, there can be pain in the world and I will be okay. Things will be okay. One of the most important things in this process is learning that I can control the thoughts in my head. Okay. Um, in days past, my one of my buddies would cuss me out over a beer and I just reach over and knock the shit out of me. Pardon my friend. But today, what happens is I realize that I'm not responsible for the first thought that comes up into my head. I'm responsible for what I do with that thought. Um, imagine you're, uh, some commercial comes on your TV and it's something that just really makes you mad. Well, I, I can sit there and let this commercial really irritate me, or I can simply change the channel. The human mind, my psychologist told me, is so constructed it can only hold one thought at a time. And what it takes is constant vigilance. They say in the military that, that constant vigilance is the price of my freedom, the price of peace. And the absolute same principle applies to the thoughts in my head. I have to recognize that, that there is negativity wanting to plant weeds in my garden. Stuff like uh, if only, what if, should have, could have, would have, blame, shame, and guilt are the three big three. And when I, when I recognize those thoughts popping up, um, I have to get rid of them, all right? And I can, a lot of times I can just say, look, you get out of here and it'll disappear. I'll change the channel in my mind, so to speak. But sometimes, you know, I'm obsessive compulsive, all right? That's, that's part of my character. And when a thought comes up, I may um, uh, decide to obsess on it. And if, if I'm thinking about um, finding a couple of ladies of the night and scoring a bunch of, bunch of wine and cocaine and going out and partying, if I hold that thought in my head, in very short time, I'm going to be right there in that position, right? And so when I catch myself obsessing on it, that same prayer actually works. All I say is, I thank you for taking away my obsession with this, with this thought, with this using, and replace it with the faith that no matter what happens, everything will be all right. And part of that spirituality is knowing that um, everything is going to be okay. What is it? The, uh, the, the moral arc of history is long, but it bends toward justice. And, and uh, they say that AA, at least, is a, is a program that's faith-based. Um, if I can't believe that, that things are going to be okay, then, then, I, then I'm grabbing for money. I'm grabbing for all kinds of worldly possessions. And, and that just doesn't work. I mean, it didn't work for me. Um, uh, and by controlling the thoughts in my head, um, I, I have room for a lot of nicer things to be there. And then, and then once, once I can clear my head of the junk, I can begin to embrace those spiritual principles that, um, uh, that, that I need to use every day. Um, we learned that we were the cause of our problems. Uh, we were arrogant. Uh, um, uh, in order to change our thinking, we had to pay attention to the thoughts of negativity of all forms had to be gotten rid of. Um, we had to... Um, uh, one, one, of the, one of the sayings is that principles, principles before personality. Now, this was a, not a thought. It was my personality before any principles that you had. I had to get new eyes that saw that, that, that living by spiritual principles could see, uh, could, could, could um, uh, get rid of all my problems. Somebody said uh, once that all women are beautiful if only I have the eyes to see it. And I believe that's true. After you sort of look at who a human being is and see the face of God or the or Buddha or the Christ within, then, then it's hard to, 
uh, to, to not love them or, or look at them in a different way. Um, um, and, and you could say that the world is perfect just the way that it is. It's just the way it's supposed to be. And if I can't see that, then it's because I don't have the eyes to see it. And developing those eyes takes a lot of time. Um, uh, I no longer have to judge other people. I can see the joy in life rather than the sorrow. I can be comfortable in my own skin. I can be kind to others, as my wife said, be kinder than you need to be. Um, uh, I always knew right from wrong that love that we were talking about in this in the spiritual prism, uh, uh, understanding others and being kind are, are part of that. Uh, now, uh, where we had been in a state of moral bankruptcy, where we would use our drug and chase our women rather than take care of our patients, that was going away. The idea of integrity of the soul now became foremost. Um, we realized that this is a work in progress and that, that it was uh, not something that was going to happen right away. Um, the goal for me uh, is serenity. Now, people talk about serenity in a lot of different ways. Uh, some people call it bliss, some call it nirvana, some call it enlightenment, some call it salvation, whatever it is. It's a place of living in the moment where I'm not afraid of tomorrow. The baggage of yesterday isn't hauling me down. Um, and when I, when I achieve that, and when I achieve that state, what happens is that, is that I'm, I'm in peace. It's a state of joy. Um, and the, the thing that was most surprising to me is that happiness is when you find serenity, happiness comes bouncing up like a little puppy dog. Happiness is the consequence of serenity. Um, and I don't know about you, but I chased happiness in many, many ways, and, and I would get it for a while, but it never would last for long. I had to re had to change all my priorities. When I was working as a physician, my top three priorities were my job, my job, my job. Um, it gave me my respect, my uh, position in society. Um, it gave me my, my, my uh, wonderful money. But now I had to change that around, and this took a while. I had to place my recovery at the very head of the list. Now, family was close behind. Eventually, when I, I suddenly, I, I realized that, that my recovery was really based on this relationship with, uh, um, with the universe. And I think I can use the word higher power. Um, I'm not sure what that is either, but it's something that that's, has uh, more power than me. You know, I don't know how to, I can plant a seed in the ground, but there's no way I can, I can make a plant come out. Can you imagine me standing over the garden and go, okay, Grow some roots now. Oh, wait a minute. Don't forget. Do some stems. Oh, no. We need xylem and phloem. I don't think I would, I would get very far with that. Um, I have to depend on the universe as being something that's actually in my favor. And when I start doing living this way, it actually becomes a reality in front of me. It's the most amazing thing. I never would have believed it. Okay. Um, uh, a lot of guys went back to the practice of medicine. Um, a lot didn't. I never did. I, I knew that if I went back, the that the 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 my primary character defect, as it turns out, was greed. I'd never been greedy before, but then I never made that kind of money before. You know, uh, there was a time when I was three months behind on the got food stamps a week before Christmas, and I thought I was in hog heaven. Um, so I never really had the opportunity to get greed. Um, one of the other things that's really important is that whatever comes up, I know I can deal with it. No matter what happens, I know I can deal with it. First, I have the faith that says it's going to be all right. Second, I have a list of spiritual principles that I can call on 
to help me figure out what to do. And third, I have these different different friends, the, the ones that were in the lifeboat with me, who know exactly what I'm going through, and I can call on them to help me. So there's nothing that comes down to the bike that I can't deal with anymore. And how, how wonderful a place is this? Um, so then um, the, the next step becomes, what do I do with this, this incredible knowledge that's been given to me? I've been listening to people's stories for 20-something years. I've, I've been reading for, for much of that time all kinds of different uh, spiritual texts. Um, what's the most interesting? If in medicine, if a, a, an article you read in a medical journal, journal is over six months old, it's already out of date because it took six months from the time they submitted it to get it in print. But spiritual wisdom never goes out of date. The spiritual answers that a, pe- that a person looks for are the same that the shepherd saw uh, guarding their flocks by night, right? Um, and that spiritual wisdom is wherever I find find it. Um, I found many, many places: the Bhagavad Gita, the Dhammapada, the Bible, the Book of Matthew, um, any number of uh, the the prophet by Khalil Gibran. Uh, it's wherever you, you you have the eyes to see it. There's even a, you can see it in Steven Spielberg movies, and there's a song by Sting. Um, where the chorus is be yourself, no matter what they say, be yourself, no matter what they say. And once, once I had the eyes, I could see it everywhere and it helped keep everything else in line. Um, so what do I do with all this wonderful stuff? Well, Paul, you remember Paul, the guy that showed up, um, uh, he's the first person that reached out to help me. All right. Um, he was, he had this terrible grin on his face because he was in a state of serenity, which didn't make any sense to me. I know that now. But over the years, there have been many, many, many men and women who have reached out to help me. Um, just like in the lifeboat, you reach out and grab the guy who's, who's drowning just outside the boat, all in. Um, and you do that because it's a thing to do. Somebody helped you, and your job then is to reach out and pass it on to the next guy. So part of the reason that I wrote this book was to um, pay back the debt that I owe to Paul and all the other people who saved my life so very, very long ago. Um, life is good. Um, and the funny thing is so amazing is it keeps getting better. You'd think that it's almost 73 or 72, that, that somehow I would have learned most of the stuff I was supposed to learn by now. But uh, not every day, but almost every day, some new lesson, some new idea, some way of looking at things. Uh, some way of interpreting something I've read 20 times before, but today when I read it, it's, it's got a whole new and deeper meaning. Life just keeps getting better. It's hard to believe that, but, but nonetheless, I, I, I'm living proof. That's great. And it's, it is a real gift that you took the time to write this book and to share your story and the stories of other physicians. And, and you do a beautiful job of describing this sort of the transformation of <clears throat> recognizing, identifying your old, the old beliefs that were, you know, causing problems and then opening up to and having conversations about spirituality and new ways of thinking and believing and God and higher power and, and all of that. So really appreciate not only writing the book, but taking time today to, to talk with me about the book. And I'm wondering if, before I let you go, if you would just update us a little bit about what you've been doing these days and tell us if there's anything in particular you're working on now or anything you're reading or, or writing. 
Um, I live out on a little hobby farm up in the Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia, and we have two sheep at the moment, um, uh, three alpacas. These are big furry pets, not country club alpacas. Um, uh, a turkey, one turkey, two geese, and a whole bunch of chickens and ducks. And I have a, uh, a donkey named Jessie, who is the um, self-appointed queen of the barnyard. And she is a real character. Um, she keeps the coyotes at bay. Uh, we have a big organic garden. Uh, we have a rose garden. Um, we have four dogs, and each are like little children with their own wonderful personalities. Um, I go with the with the pandemic. It's 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 really not possible to um, to go to AA meetings in per- person, but um, I've been attending some Zoom meetings, uh, and that helps. It's not the same by by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, when I go to an AA meeting. I go there for a couple of reasons. One is these people who are in that room know exactly what I went through to get there. These people in that room know exactly the thoughts that are going through my head and, and the troubles that I'm having. And these people in the room know um, how to deal with all of those. Um, uh, I was at a meeting once with my friend Robert. He's a very, very good and dear friend. And um, uh, somebody asked him, so why do you go to these meetings? And he answered, and it's a classic answer. Why uh, I come to these meetings uh, to carry the message, and I said, "Well, Robert, what is the message?" Well, as we talked about the difference between abstinence and sobriety and recovery, just not drinking is is not an answer. It doesn't it doesn't help the problems that are underlying. And it suddenly occurred to me, sitting there in the room, that in the in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, which you really haven't touched on, um, there there is a, there is in there twice. There's a simple sentence that. We came to believe that living by spiritual principles would solve all of our problems. That, in fact, is the message of recovery. And that's what I tried to carry forth in the book. I have a blog now, and I put little, sometimes I put uh, little incidents from the, uh, from the book. Sometimes I'll talk about whatever's, whatever recovery topic happens to be uh, flowing through my mind at the moment. I have a website, that the answer is recovery, where, uh, .com, where I uh, uh, talk about uh, in a very objective sort of way about the disease and its treatment. I have a, another website just for the book itself, um, Spiritual Pathway to Recovery. Uh, and that's where the blog site is. Um, uh, between taking care of the, uh, oh, and I'm learning some new songs on my guitar. Uh, I'm learning a new Tom Petty song uh, called Wildflowers. And I'm learning a uh, Tony Rice song. Uh, called Ruben's Train and some other stuff. I, I used to go play bluegrass with some friends of mine, um, but that's not possible now either, so I just have to do it by myself. I'm busy. Yeah, well, it's funny. Um, uh, people say that uh, I have so much stuff to do now that I'm retired. I don't know how I ever had time to work, and that's definitely true for me. There's so many wonderful things to do. At this point in life, I don't have to do anything. I get to do whatever it is that's next on my list. And if it's not fun, I can figure out how to make it fun. Um, every day uh, is quite literally a day in paradise. And um, uh, I've never had this, this much. I've never been so happy or had so much fun in my whole life before now. It's the most amazing thing. That's great. And it's a wonderful place to leave things. And I'll remind our listeners that they can find access to your websites on the blog posted on the New Books website, New, New Books Network website. Thanks so much for taking time to talk with me today. Oh, it's my, it's my pleasure. I, um, 
uh, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm quite a bit of the, um, uh, I don't know, hog. I love the sound of my own voice. <laughs>